you turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. And we will be reading the first eight verses. All good. Uh, Genesis 18, 1 through 8. Mr. Ed, would you like to read that for us? Sure. Then the Lord appeared to him by the cherubim tree of Mount Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door. In the heat of the day, so he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing with him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the ground, and said, My Lord, if I have found, now I found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourself under the tree. And I will bring you a morsel of bread, and you will refresh your heart. After that, you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried to the tent with Sarah and said, Quickly, make a ready three measures of and make cakes. And Abraham ran to her and took a tender and good calf and gave it to the young man to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them and under the tree as it ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in years, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself and saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being also uh, old? How, how far? Eight, 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 Eighteen, what did you say? Uh, to eight. eight. But it's okay. No worries. Okay. I wasn't going to stop you. <laughs> no worries. So this morning, uh, I'd like for us to consider the topic of hospitality, as I said in my prayer this morning. And from this passage uh, that we just read together, we see two different kinds of hospitality uh, on display here that I would like for us to dive into a little bit. The first is God's hospitality to Abraham and Abraham's hospitality to the strangers, which is obviously God himself. The transcendent, uh, transcendent eternal, and incomprehensible Lord condescended in order to make uh, and to come and meet with Abraham. And this is no strange occurrence to Abraham, really, because in the first uh, the six chapters previous to this one, uh, the Lord has condescended in order to promise and make official covenant with Abraham on numerous occasions. This is even the language of our confession in chapter 7, paragraph 1, where it says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. But by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath 
been pleased to express by way of covenant. So the Lord condescends to us in order to make provision for us so that we may know our creator. He only ever has and ever will relate to us by way of covenant. And when I say condescend, I do not mean that he has come down from a place in the sky. While this may be true in a manner of speaking and is a helpful illustration for wrapping our minds around the concept, it's really only an analogy. When I say condescension, I'm referring to the way that he is able to communicate that which is infinite in a way that the finite is able to understand in some, some way. As St. Thomas Aquinas said, the Lord reveals himself in the mode of the knower. Or like Calvin's analogy here, it's like a, nurse, uh, a nursing mother talking to her baby. The baby talk that you hear her speak to her child. My wife is not going to speak to my daughter the same way that she speaks to me. Right? Um, why? Because she speaks to my daughter with much easier language to understand so that my daughter can grasp what she's saying. She does so in a loving way, guiding her further and further into new worlds and ideas that are strange and foreign to her young mind. She is being hospitable, in a sense. However, I will say that there is a difference in our passage here from the previous six chapters in the way that, uh, in which he had come and revealed himself in the likeness and appearance of a man or a stranger. And Abraham recognized him right away. How do we know this? Well, because he immediately got up and went to him, referred to him by his covenant name. Though you do not see it in the translations uh, fully in the English, you can see the way that our translations do have Lord in all capital letters in verse 3, which means that he referred to him as Jehovah. Now, make of it what you will about the other two with him. There has been a lot of speculation in church history as to who those other two are. Some say the two angels with God uh, are, are angels with God, and others say that this is the three persons of the Trinity, of the, uh, of the Godhead, taking on the likeness of men to meet with Abraham. We simply don't know for sure, and I don't tend to take that view, partly because the events that occur later in this chapter and the next, one of them, that stays, with, uh, one of them stays with Abraham while the other two go down to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah um, to, to inquire about the sins of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Abraham's nephew Lot meets the two men, he does not refer to them by the covenant name, but refers to them as lowercase lords, Adonai. A name given to those of nobility and authority, yes, but, uh, but is still often referred to as God as well. But there is a distinction of titles here. However, no matter what the case may be, whether their identity be angels or the second and third persons of the Trinity, we can at least say with confidence that the Lord used it to at least allude to or infer his triunity and his hospitality uh, this hospitality of our lord is what led to abraham's hospitality abraham upon seeing the three men <clears throat> immediately jumped up sought them out and pleaded with them to come and stay with him to rest to wash their feet to give them food and with great urgency as well because we see that in verse six and seven it tells us that he hastened into the tent to tell sarah to make cakes of flour for the men, but also that he ran into the herd and to find a choice calf to feed them because he sought anything uh, before he sought anything in return from them almost before he was they were even able to get a word out in response. He was already out and on his way to make provisions for them. And it was not meager rations that he provided for them, but he prepared a great feast that would have been enough to feed a whole household for these travelers. But notice that the reason why Abraham was able to display this hospitality, the Lord's condescension to come to him. 
If God had not come down to meet with him, Abraham would not have had the opportunity to bring him to his table and serve him. Some of the early church fathers and ecclesiastical writers like John Chrysostom and Origen would take uh, note of this and even use two different terms to describe these two forms of hospitality, that God directs toward Abraham and Abraham directs toward God. The, the word that uh, is used, that they both used, Origen and St. John Chrysostom, when it was going from God to Abraham was this. It was sin, God of bosses, right? Which, to break this down, you all, I'm sure you know, like the word synchronous or synchronize, right? Sin, together, right? Then kata means uh, to uh, go down, right? And then basis meaning uh, together or to go, right? So it's, it's a direction of going downwards together to commune with, right? It's, a, it's a basically uh, a more fuller uh, term that describes the idea of condescension that's happening. Here. But then the word that they used for Abraham back to God was this word, philozenos, right? Which is the broken, broken up in two different Greek terms here for uh, this term. So philo or phileo in Greek, right? Uh, being this idea of brotherly love, we have like the, the city of Philadelphia, right? You know, being the breakup of Adelphoi and phileo, brotherly love right um, but then we also have like philosophy the love of Sophia wisdom right or we have uh, bibliophile right the lover of books right um, we also have that other term xenos here which that term in the Greek means stranger or foreigner oh, yeah we oftentimes see it uh, in reference to xenophobia today most common place that we would people recognize this term in the modern day would be with the social justice types who use xenophobia, right? Implying that many who disagree with their political views have a fear of strangers and foreigners. So to contrast that, we have this term here, philoxenos, which means a love of strangers, right? And this is the term that the New Testament actually also uses all throughout that is rendered as hospitality in the English. For instance, take the biblical qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. It says that a presbyter must be given to philozenos, hospitality. The same goes for the qualifications he states in the, epistles of Titus, uh, the epistle to Titus. Titus 1.8 says that the elder must be a lover of philozenos, hospitality. And they are not the only ones charged with this responsibility, but are to be given as exemplars for the congregations under their care. However, all over the New Testament, over and over again, the apostle commands the church at large to be hospitable to one another. We also see this term xenos used all throughout the ancient Greek world in this manner. There was an unwritten sacred code of ethics in the ancient Greeks uh, that the ancient Greeks bound themselves to, which they referred to as xenia. Um, it was a detailed understanding of the guest-host relationship and how each was to treat one another. So it was not simply a one-way relationship um, where the host provided for the guest, but the guest was also expected to receive and behave in a particular manner in response to the hospitality of the host. And if neither side of the arrangement abided by this code, 
then it was believed that they incurred the wrath of the gods upon themselves. One of the common epithets that the Greeks actually ascribed to, the, uh, to Zeus was Zeus Xenios. Right? <clears throat> or Zeus, god of the strangers. But Deuteronomy 10, 17, uh, 17 through 19 says this. It says, for the Lord your God is... God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widows and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So while Zeus is obviously a false god, or as Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, is a demon posing as a god, if we read the scriptures and see how the Lord handles the poor and the stranger, we can rightly appropriate this title for the one true God. We may refer to, rightly refer to him as Jehovah Xenios. But perhaps nowhere in classical literature is the code of Xenia more detailed and shown in action than in the Homeric epics, especially in the Odyssey. In order to understand the background of the Odyssey, we have to briefly understand the events, that found, uh, events found in the Iliad. Paris, the prince of the Trojans, took Menelaus, the king of Sparta's wife, Helen, while he was a guest in his home, which ironically is a, an infringement of Xenia, right? He's infringing upon this guest host relationship. All the Greek states then joined together and waged war against the Trojans. The Trojan War then ensued for nine whole years. That's a lot longer than what the Brad Pitt movie showed it to be, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> After the sack of Troy, the Greeks won the war, and then they set sail to return home. The plot of the Odyssey began over a decade later, where one of the great Greek kings, generals, and tacticians present during the war at Troy, Odysseus, still has not made it home. As a little side note, one of his epithets, the ones attributed to Odysseus, is peer with Zeus and forethought, meaning that he was actually the greatest strategist of the Greeks. He was the mastermind behind the Trojan horse that we still use colloquially today, right? Um, so by the time the events of the, uh, of the Odyssey are taking place, he is 20 years removed from his home, and many of the people understandably presume that he has died, including his wife and son, who was an infant when he left for war. In the first five books, the scene was set, and we are told, that the current, uh, told of the current state of affairs. Odysseus has been trapped on an island for the last seven years by a nymph named Calypso. His son has now grown into a young man and mourns his father's loss, especially as he watches daily while 108 young men come daily into his father's house and plunder it. These men are his mother's suitors that she does not want and is still holding out hope that Odysseus may potentially return. This is where we get the first glimpse of the concept of Xenia. To begin with, we see Athena, the ancient Greek goddess of wisdom, disguise herself as a male stranger and enter into the house of Odysseus during a great feast. Odysseus' son, Telemachus, is sitting by himself in a daydream when he finally comes to himself and notices that this stranger has not been attended to. He welcomes her in, takes her gear, sits her on a throne, offers her the best of the feast, and begins to make conversation with her. These hospitable acts are then immediately countered when we see the, the suitors enter in, uh, to the scene of the feast. Telemachus, in speaking to Athena, then describes these suitors. He says, 
Throng, they are thronging our house day after day. They slay our oxen, sheep, and fat and, go, uh, and fat goats, and keep revel and drink the sparkling wine recklessly. And havoc is made of all this wealth. There, for there is no man here, such as Odysseus was, to ward off ruin from this house. As for me, I am no wise such as he to ward it off. Nay, verily, even if I try, I shall be found a weakling and no uh, one knowing not of valor. Yet. Truly, I would defend myself if I had but the power, for now deeds past all enduring have been wrought, and past all that is seemly my house has been destroyed. Take shame upon yourselves, and have regard to your neighbors who dwell round about, and fear the wrath of the gods, lest happily they turn against you in anger at your evil deeds. Later, we see Telemachus visiting one of Odysseus' old battle buddies at Troy, King Nestor of Pylos, to try to inquire about the fate of his father. He has brought the disguised Athena with him, and at the end of their welcome, uh, welcome meal in Nestor's home, Athena stands up, transforms into an osprey, and flies away from the feast. Nestor immediately then realizes that Athena has been a guest in his household and offers up a sacrifice. So two times now, we see that there has been this transcendent being that has been graciously welcomed and shown hospitality in a home where the host was unaware of their true identity. What exactly does that remind us of as Christians at this point? Hebrews 13, 2, right? Where the Apostle Paul commands us, do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. But moving on, Odysseus and his account reaches many different destinations prior to coming home. And upon his arrival to three of these foreign lands, he repeats the same lines each time. Woe is me, to the land of what mortals am I now come? Are they cruel and wild and unjust, or do they love strangers and fear the gods and their thoughts? So here he equates the love of strangers, Philozenos, with having a fear of the gods or a godly and pious mind. Again, he states these exact same words in three different places, and it is interesting because he receives a different answer each time he states it. The first time we see him stated, it is after he has been let go by Calypso. He is shipwrecked, washes up on the island of Scaria. There, the Phaeacian people, under the authority of King Alcinous, welcome him as a guest. He, in a later book, reveals his true identity to them, and they lavish him with great gifts. The second time he is, uh, is during his recounting his travels from Troy up to that moment to the Phaeacian people. He tells them of his account where he and his men come ashore upon the island of the Cyclopes. Where uh, there he restates those lines. Woe is me to the land of what mortals am I now come? Are they cruel and wild and unjust? Or do they love strangers and fear the gods and their thoughts? They then encounter, uh, they en en then enter into a cave and there encounter the Cyclops that inhabits it named Polyphemus. There the following interaction took place. We served under Agamemnon, uh, this is Odysseus speaking, Son of Atreus, the whole world knows what city he laid waste, what armies he destroyed. It was our luck to come here. Here we stand, beholden for your help or any gifts you give, as custom is to honor strangers. We would entreat you, great sir, have a care for the gods' courtesy. Zeus will offend the unoffending guest. And he, Polyphemus, answered this from his brute chest, unmoved. You are a ninny, or else you would come from the other end of nowhere, telling me, mind the gods. We Cyclopes are not a uh, care not a whistle for your thundering Zeus or all the gods in bliss. We have more, more force by far. I would not let you go for fear of Zeus, you or your friends, unless I had a whim. So it's clear 
to see that Polyphemus cares nothing about the divine and the sacred, and therefore has no care for Xenia. Instead of giving food to his guests, he does the exact opposite and devours them. And the scene that unfolded from there, he would go on to grab two of Odysseus's men and eat them, and then trapped them inside of the cave with a giant boulder covering its opening. He came back the next morning and to eat two more for breakfast and continued eating them two by two until they managed to make their escape. The third time that we see Odysseus appeal to these lines, wondering uh, if the land that he had now come to was inhabited by hospitable people, was when the Phaeacian people had given him a voyage back to his homeland of Ithaca. He was put into a deep slumber and dropped off on the island, that when he awoke, he did not know where he was. And it was there that he received really a mixture of both of the two previous answers. When he arrived back on Ithaca, Athena gave Odysseus the appearance of an old beggar. And he was shown hospitality by a servant of his, a swineherd named Eumaios. And in this, their discussion, Eumaios would welcome him into his home to his table and then tell him of his great affection for his master Odysseus, whom he missed more dearly than his own parents in his homeland. But on the flip side, he was also shown great disdain from other servants, one a goat herd named Melanthius, who would ridicule him, kick at him, make plain that he was happy Odysseus was dead. We also later see the great affliction that he received from the suitors. They mocked and taunted him, attempted to deny him food, threw stools at him, and challenged him to fights. In the middle of the account of Odysseus being disguised as a beggar in his own home, we are briefly shown this image of him catching a glimpse of his old hunting dog, Argos, who is now old and beat up and laying on a dung heap outside the palace. With a, the great description of the scene, it says that Argos had ticks, this dog, represents the state of Odysseus' kingdom in his absence, and the ticks are representative of the suitors that are there sucking the life out of him while he lays in his own filth. Odysseus then shows that, uh, is shown to have this interaction with one of the leaders of the suitors named Antinous. But here Antinous broke in, shouting, What evil wind blew in this pest? Get over, stand in the passage, nudge my table, will you? Egyptian whips are, so, are sweet to what you'll come to, you nosing rat. Make your pitch to everyone. These men have bread to throw away on you because it is not theirs. Who cares? Who spares another's food when he has more than plenty? While uh, with, uh, with guile, Odysseus drew away and then said, A pity that you have more looks than heart. You grudge a pinch of salt from your own larder to your own handyman. You sit there fat on others' meat and cannot bring yourself to rummage out a crust of bread for me. So with great display of irony, Odysseus is seen begging for his own food from a man that doesn't even, it doesn't even belong to, and yet is denied. But on the flip side to the suitors, Odysseus' family, Telemachus and Penelope, showed him great affection and tender care, even while unaware of his true identity. So the point of all this is, to see that we have this theme of the necessity of Xenia all throughout this work, and this code is invoked and appealed to throughout the entire plot, and is shown to be a sacred duty. Both hosts and guests are bound by divine sanction to uphold the standard of hospitality in Xenia. And this is how the ancient world, including the love of the stranger and care for others, was viewed in the ancient world in general. And this is including the world that we see portrayed in the scriptures. Right? Any questions or thoughts so far at this point? Any points of concern? This is, I know it's a lot on the Odyssey at this point. This is more of an introduction here, just as a point. But any thoughts so far? 
No? All right. So next we will discuss the modern conceptions of hospitality, or I should really better label them misconceptions. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Newman in her book, Untamed Hospitality, lays out a few different types of these modern distortions of hospitality that we see so often around us today. And I'd like to consider these for just a little bit. The first one that she calls out is what she refers to as sentimental hospitality. And with this, she means the type of hospitality that is offered where people come into a home and nothing of substance is offered in the communion between the guest and the host. It all remains very surface level, superficial. It's entirely about appearances where the host believes that there is a need to put up a facade in order uh, to keep a certain reputation with their guest. And the fellowship ends with a certain bland blandness. Have you ever been a guest in someone's home and while you've been fed and you've had much conversation with these people, when you leave, you feel as if you've gained absolutely nothing from being there? It's like being welcomed into Disney World, where ultimately you take pictures with a guy dressed in a goofy costume that will that he, he'll forget your face in a matter of five seconds, right? Before, like after you walk away. There yet still remains a distance between you and your host. There is no truth to this type of hospitality. It's like a doctor who smiles laughs and jokes with a patient while neglecting to tell them about the cancer diagnosis that they have just received because they don't want to be the bearer of bad news. Even if it is the truth, true hospitality is accommodating. It gets to the person. In, Odys uh, in the Odyssey, the one, uh, one of the first things that you often see is the first thing a host does for their guest is take away their war gear. That means their swords, their shields, other weapons and armor that they may have been equipped with. This is obviously for multiple reasons. You don't want to be threatened in your own home. <clears throat> but also, it was to relieve the burden of your guests. It allowed them to put their defenses down and gave them a greater sense of welcome. They are now under the charge, care, and protection of their host. I usually don't like using this word because a lot of the connotations that are attached to it today, but it gave them a sense of vulnerability. The guests had to show a profound level of trust in their host and vice versa. The second distortion of hospitality that she gets after is what she calls privatized hospitality. It's in some ways very similar to the first one. I think another proper term that can be uh, used for it is white glove hospitality. To sum it up in a word, this type of hospitality is nice. And once again, it's about appearances and the external rather than the internal. John Thorne in his book Outlaw Cook when speaking about this very idea, says of Martha Stewart's overwhelming emphasis on things, if you take your house and remove from view everything that is quirky, ugly, or difficult, and heap the polished shelves with unthreatening, desirable objects coveted by your neighbors, surface becomes everything, an impenetrable, calculated, and intensely desirable veneer. In most homes, the contents are a mirror of the selves that live there. In this home, the mirror reflects nothing but desire. We don't look into it. We look at it and murmur, I love it. Where can I get one for myself? Again, it's not a matter of bringing the guest into your home with a warmth of welcome. It's holding others at a distance with all of your stuff between you and them. But also, under this form of hospitality, everything is considered to be private. And thus, it is never to be practiced in the public square. It is not a way of life, but it is only relegated to a form of private entertainment. And Dr. Elizabeth Newman draws the connection here of the privatized, uh, privatization of hospitality with the privatization of religion as a whole. When everything becomes a matter of civility and manners, this gives rise to the mantra that you hear in just about every workplace today, don't talk about religion and politics. 
If you haven't heard it in the workplace, I'm sure you've heard it in other gatherings like family Thanksgiving dinner, right? Why? Because we all know that there's a certain point where the truth becomes uncouth and uncivil. You don't want to get the white gloves dirty with the dust that may be stirred up in the skirmish over religion. That's your religious position. This is mine. We'll keep it that way. Hospitality is about joining together, uniting yourself as host and guest and communing with one another. And we are to find our common bond with one another around the truth that is common to all men. St. Augustine says in his confessions, I love, that, uh, I love what they say when they say truth, not because it is theirs, but because it is truth. From the mere fact that it is true, it ceases to be theirs. But if they love it because it is true, then it is not only theirs, but mine too. It is common property of all lovers of truth. For your truth is not mine or this man's or that man's. It belongs to all of us because publicly you call us to share it, warning us most terribly not to possess it as, it as a private property, lest we be deprived of it. The next distortion, very briefly, that Elizabeth Newman describes in her book is what she refers to as hospitality as a mode of marketing. And this is what is often called the hospitality industry. Right in our contemporary world. Real briefly, this is basically the whole cruise or Olive Garden mantra of when you're here, you're family, right? Type of idea. That it's a type of consumerism. Rather than it being a form of a gift or community building, it turns the concept into merchandising, uh, merchandise to be purchased. Much like the previous two distortions, your host never even gets to genuinely know you. Because both the guest and the host only view one another as a means to their own satisfaction or gain. A server views their guest as a means to getting a tip, and the guest views the server as a means to getting a meal. There is no connection between the two on a personal level in any way. She also went on to describe what she refers to as hospitality as inclusivity. Sam, can you write these different types of hospitality? Absolutely. Keep track of two of them. Yeah, I got you. So first one was sentiment, uh, sentimental. Sorry, and the second one was private. Third one was pretty sure. Hang on. <clears throat> yep, as marketing. And the fourth one was inclusivity. So hospitality is inclusivity. I think that we have become much more acquainted with this distortion since she actually wrote this book. It was published in 2006. Within the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen this massive push for diversity just for diversity's sake. And obviously diversity is not a bad thing in and of itself. However, it's also not inherently good either. While the scriptures do tell us that the heavens will be filled with peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation... We have to remember that the flames of damnation will be as well. Really, I remember when I was joining the Navy back in 2013, and my recruiter was uh, telling me about the particular quotas that he was trying to hit. Uh, it wasn't, I need to get X amount of uh, men or X amount of people to enlist this month. The demographic that he was most concerned with was black women, specifically. He was being asked to look harder to try to find black women interested, in, uh, interested than any males, no matter the consequences that this may actually have on our armed forces. Why? Because they score more minority points. 
And we have adopted this unquestionable axiom that the greater the, diver the, greater the diversity, the greater the virtue and power, right? A really interesting point that Elizabeth Newman actually points out in this section of her book is a similarity or connection between the market hospitality and the hospitality of inclusivity. Both provide a vast array of choices to the general populace and allows them to then take what they want to build their own identity rather uh, with rather than be content with the place and identity that has been bestowed upon them. She says, diversity provides us with a vast array of choices, as does the market. Mar uh, hospitality as diversity, like the market, is essentially aesthetic and non-committal. No large commitments enable those who embrace hospitality as diversity to discern which differences are truly good and therefore gifts and which are more reflective of our fallen world. According to this, differences are only mere differences of lifestyle choices, and there is no way that we can objectively state whether any of those differences are better than others. And this idea is often used as a tool to celebrate minority points of difference in order to mask our need to commune with one another over things that actually matter. Now, the last form of hospitality she gives is referred to as homeless hospitality. The way that she goes on to describe this one is really multifaceted, but by and large, they all boil down to this point. Average modern Western people, especially Americans, are rootless. We have no home. It is within our very founding where our fathers came from a complete opposite side of the world. Uh, and throughout our history, our example, like, for example, the gold rush in the early 19th century where men left their homes, their families, their communities, all for the sake of seeking after wealth. American history is marked by a lack of attachment to place. It's ingrained in our very ethos. Take the idea of the single-use zoning of our cities, where we see the birth of the suburb. No longer are businesses, churches, schools, etc., all within the same vicinity of the home. We now require complex and extensive road systems to carry us and our vehicles 20 to 30 minutes away from our home to get to our jobs. Our homes now only become secondary to our places of work and oftentimes are only used to sleep and eat before going back to work just a few hours later. This builds up the idea that the home is only a place of rest and not a place to actually live your life. Out and being far away from your home is considered living your life. For instance, there have been many times uh, there are, you know, more than one occasion where I've had family in town visiting Sadie and I, and she and I both go to tell them toward the end of their stay, I'm sorry that we're boring people. We didn't really do anything. We just stayed at home all day with you guys. That's really a strange thing to say, don't you think? Where the home is not seen as the very place of hospitality, but somehow taking them to Chipotle is, right? <laughs> There are many other things that she says here and the points that she gets at here that, but that I think that are really good, but I think that that's sufficient to get after our purposes here. Any, I'll stop here for a moment for any thoughts, comments, questions. I think we're all, all, all of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I definitely agree. This is the modern West in a nutshell right here. She actually also has a section in her book where she talks about the McDonaldization of um, which the, she it's a very funny term but by that what she means is our hospitality is calculated it's predictable it's um, controlled and uh, it's efficient 
So our hospitality, we know, like when you go to someone's house, you know what you're gonna get. You, there's very little room for uh, surprise. There's very little room for you to actually connect with the person on a way that, where you're not like out of, you know, in fear of trying to like offend them, right? Um, or, uh, you know, like basically you're constantly looking at the clock, trying to figure out, okay, when's this gonna end? Obviously, you know, it's not good to overextend your welcome as a guest, right? <laughs> Which, you know, but yeah, she does. Absolutely. Yeah. But yes, she absolutely does lay out. She actually in the last chapter has gives two, um, you know, really, I'd say fairly extreme examples that she gets after. But she ultimately says you don't have to meet these standards. Really, the biggest thing is they start with the little things, which <laughs> say what you will about that. But. No, that's a good, no, that was a good point about uh, what you're making. Um, I, I might submit, is she ever, I've had another form of hospitality and that gets into what later on Abraham did here. Uh, when he went to Sodom and Gomorrah, or no, the angels that had visited uh, Abraham, they went on to visit Sodom and Gomorrah, and they went to Lot's house. Mm -hmm. And and Lot told uh, those angels, or those men, the, 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 the visiting men, they pulled, he pulled them into their house for safety mm -hmm. against these, these evil men on the outside of the house. And and it's kind of a safety, it's a safety that he's showing hospitality for safety reasons. And I, I think there's people that do, um, I'd make that equivalent, um, people pull people into their house because of, let's say there's a disaster. You don't even know, they don't even know you or something, but they lost your house because it's a disaster, you know, it's some kind of a disaster, it's a safety. Yeah. I don't know, is that sort of like the homeless? that fall under the category of the homeless person it's a more of a safe a safety thing yeah i mean i would say that you can look at lot's life and the fact that you know he went there rather than going say with it like i mean obviously there was the account where he divided from abraham right where the servants were well, fighting the, over the lot war. pulled him in lot yeah, pulled but, those men lot pulled the two angels yeah. into his house yeah um Showed him hospitality because just for the safety state. Yeah. He's going to give him his daughters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's pretty. That's pretty. Yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot to be said about that in particular. But yeah, I'm I mean, really, with, I mean, with that in particular, like you have to think about what the ancient world, obviously, he's a father and he, you shouldn't do it, right? <laughs> but, but the ancient world with that idea, that concept of Zania and it's in mind, right? They, they really, um, when they brought in a stranger into their home, it was, they were under their charge and protection at all costs, which that actually, uh, there's, there's an account even, um, I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie Lone Survivor or heard of it, right? So there's actually is a book, I read it before I joined the Navy, it was one of the things that inspired me to join the Navy, right? which became a movie in like 2014 where this he was a, it was a navy seal named marcus latrell 
who he and his team were going on an operation and basically his three other teammates shot and killed. You know, one of them had his skull blown off, whatever, right? It's crazy. The whole story is wild. He actually was shot like 40 times or something like that. Like, just wild. He actually had to crawl like four miles or whatever with all these bullet wounds to basically get to safety away from the danger, right? And uh, he was actually found by this Afghani village where they uh, appealed and they incited this ancient code that they actually refer to as Pashtunwali, right? Where it's actually a very similar concept and they actually protected Marcus Luttrell from the Taliban, this small village, and actually like a couple dozen people in that village died because they were appealing to this ancient code of, that was sacred that said, you have to protect this man at all costs, even at the sake of your own life, right? So that's kind of similar what, I mean, obviously, yes, you shouldn't be willing to offer up your daughters or whatever, but it's this idea that when this person is brought into your home, it's, they're under your charge. So, um, this, 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 this is all one chapter, by the way, of her book. This is not all spread out. So she has many great things to say about and positive forms of hospitality. She does. Is, is there, you know, you, you I'm sort of jump into the conclusion, but you, you, you laid out what I'll call an ancient form of hospitality, which seems to be endemic in, in the world. And there's also a biblical form of yes. like it would deduce from Abraham's trip. Is there, is there a difference between those two? A difference between the, the ancient, ancient world I'm and the Christian? using a term ancient for the historical. In the fact that. It's also. Let's call it uh, pro Indian here, Indian whatever, you know, it's uh, Yeah, so uh, yes and no, right? So um, there are obviously some distinctions in the fact that um, we provide primarily for the covenant community, right? Which, I, I mean, I do have notes on getting at that in, later in my notes, but that's... One of the biggest things that the scriptures actually hit on, I mean, uh, in Galatians 6, Paul says specifically, lovers of Christ, those are the ones that, you know, those who have the faith, you are to provide for them above like anybody else, right? And that's a, that's a big thing that the scriptures have. But I mean, like, in terms of what the scriptures and how the scriptures describe how we are to care for a guest or care for those in need, I mean, it's all throughout say, like the prophets, right, um, where they basically actually, I mean, again, this is also in my notes, where they actually speak down judgment and condemnation upon the nation of Israel for neglecting to abide by that duty of performing hospitality for, like, I mean, um, actually, Ezekiel, um, in describing Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, obviously, we oftentimes um, equate the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah with sodomy, homosexuality. But in Ezekiel, I think 49, he actually lays out more of the sins. And one of the biggest, one of the main points that he has in there, and one of the main sins that he lists, he fleshes out a little bit, is the fact that they had much bread, but they did not strengthen the hand of the poor, is what he says. Um, so it's this neglect for the needy in our society. Which I don't, I mean, due to time, I'll, I'll try to make sure that I only hit a few points here. But just to get out a few points of, of application before we, we 
close out here. Um, give and give in abundance. Right. Not merely enough to where we're scraping up the last crumb, nor not enough to where we are lacking and go, uh, some go without, but in abundance. It doesn't have to be fancy or amazing food, but it ought to be a feast, like the account of Abraham that we began our study with, providing a great spread of bread, meat, and butter for his guests. Let me provide you with some theological grounding for this. Consider the question, why did God create anything at all? God lacks nothing. So it was not necessary for him to do so. So he, has, uh, so he is the only life that is truly necessary. It was out of the overabundance of love that he gave life to others. His overabundance of life and charity is what gave way to creation. Therefore, as those who bear his image, and especially as those who have been redeemed, we ought to give out of the great abundance and love that, was, uh, that has been given to us for our neighbor. Next, consider the account of Christ and the feeding of the 5,000. Do any of them go without? Or are they like scraping up for crumbs? No, there were 12 baskets left over. Again, it doesn't have to be anything crazy fancy. You don't have to give them this amazing, tasty feast. But simply, Christ gave them bread and fish. But it was enough that all men had their fill, and there was much left. This is actually a point that when I was writing this out and thinking through this, I actually stopped and... Sadie was like, what's, what's wrong? Like, because I was like in thought and she was like, and I just told her, I was like, it's, I'm kind of convicted about this one because I'm constantly telling Sadie, no, that's too much. It's too much. Like half that, right? Like, you know, it's, you know, you don't, we don't need that much. Every meal that we come together and share, we go to pack away our leftovers uh, and we go to pack away our leftovers afterwards. We are reminded of the overabundance of grace that the Lord has bestowed upon our lives and his extending to us our daily bread. We obviously aren't to cook a meal for an army when it's just six of us. However, we should be willing to prepare some where we each eat comfortably and potentially even have enough for someone or even extra some ones that may join us unexpectedly. And maybe even enough to pack away some for Andrew and Sean to tote for lunch the next day at work. <laughs> um, now, who is the command of hospitality for? Every Christian, every last one. The 17th century Dutch the, uh, theologian Wilhelmus de Brockel actually says this. First, the persons who are to be compassionate are the rich, the people of moderate means, and the people, uh, people of limited means, as well as the poor. No one is excluded. Everyone must inwardly be moved toward compassion, which is to be accompanied by a ready inclination to render assistance. The gift varies, however, the one gives much, the other gives less, the other little. Each is to give according to his means and consistent with the authority he has over certain possessions. Take, for instance, the poor widow in Mark 12, uh, who generously gave to the temple all that she had, even though it was only two coins. Or the poor widow of Zarephath, who gave her last bit of bread to Elijah. The Lord blessed her hospitality by providing for her and her son, declaring that her bin of flour shall never be used up, nor her jar of oil uh, run dry. Or if you recall from the Odyssey, it would be, would be to display great hospitality to Odysseus when he arrived back to his when he was brought home, uh, he was brought home by his slave Eumaios, the swineherd. Um, now, uh, let me skip over here. Better bit of these things. Uh, last point of application here. Um, well, here, 
our very outlook of hospitality and serving others around us would drastically be changed if we took the words of Christ in Matthew 25, seriously, <laughs> and we viewed uh, the poor among us as if they were Christ, where he says, you fed me, you clothed me, all these things, and therefore, you know, I welcome into the kingdom, right? Um, but they asked him, why? Like, we never, we never did those things for you. When, when were you naked? When were you hungry? And he said, as much as you did to the least of these, you did it to me. But then he also goes on and speaks out rebuke as well. And for those that didn't do those things and actually casts judgment upon those and says, you will go with the devils into the everlasting fires if you did not do these things. Um, yeah, so, you know, First John three seventeen also tells us, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? We have to remember that everything we have is a gift from the Lord. This is his world. He created it, and he does whatever he pleases with it. We do not have the same right. When the Lord bestows great gifts upon us, and yet we neglect to share those with great gifts with others, we are plundering our king's inheritance and wealth, much like the suitors in Odysseus' palace. And do you know what happened to those suitors in the end? Odysseus and his son, Telemachus, slaughtered all of them. All 100 of them, 108 of them were struck down. The Lord Christ will one day return and cast judgment upon those that have plundered his creation, using it as their own, and neglecting to even offer a crust of bread to the beggar. Now, first... Peter 4 tells us that the judgment begins in the house of the Lord, and this is perhaps most explicitly detailed against those that spurn his hospitality by defining, defiling his table and his bride. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 30, uh, which read, we read every time we observe the Lord's Supper, plainly tells us that we are to partake of the supper in a worthy manner. And when we do not, verse 29 tells us that we eateth and drinketh what upon ourselves? Damnation. Judgment. My friends, let, us, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, and honoring giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, prayer distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, the ability, Lord, that you have as a church and as saints to be able to be hospitable to one another and to those that are around us in our community. Lord, we pray that you would give us conviction to serve, especially your church, and give according to the needs of one another. Lord, we pray that you would help us be strengthened in this virtue, and that you would make us generous givers. We pray these things in the name of your Son, the power of your Holy Ghost. Amen.